Hello and welcome to the Change Makers LA podcast. My name is Tanua Thrash Intuk and I'm the Executive Director of the Local Initiative Support Corporation for the Los Angeles office, also known as LISC LA. In today's episode, we'll be talking about economic development and community investment in the time of COVID-19. We've got some great special guests for today. First, I'd like to welcome Michaela Randolph, who currently serves as board president of the South LA or SOLA Food Co-op, a, sto- a startup grocery store owned by the community to service South Los Angeles. In this role, Michaela provides strategic guidance to move the cooperative to store opening. Michaela is a native South Angelino, a mother of a preteen daughter and owner of Randolph Consulting Boutique. It's a boutique consulting firm that works to improve communities through policy and partnerships. Uh, Michaela, welcome. I saw you smile when I talked about your your daughter. Thank you. It's a role I I, uh, hold dear, you know, Um, so thank you so much for having me today. I totally understand. Thanks for being here. I've got a teen daughter now who's no longer preteen. Oh, my goodness. Yes, mine will be a teen in December, so all in due time. (laughs) Yes. Great. Well, we've also got with us today Mary M. Lee. Mary uh, consults with community-based organizations, public officials, government agencies, and philanthropy, working on dismantling racially biased systems and structures to build just and equitable neighborhoods. She is former Deputy Director of PolicyLink, a national advocacy organization working to advance racial equity, economic, and social justice. During her tenure at PolicyLink, she provided research, strategic planning, technical assistance, and training to public and private agencies, collaborating to build healthy communities. She has co-authored countless reports, journals, and articles on access to healthy food, the built environment, and the impact of place and race on health. Mary Lee, thanks for joining us. Oh, Mary Lee, we've got you muted. Sorry about that. I'm delighted to be here, uh, mostly to be able to have this incredible conversation with some really wonderful advocates. Thank you for having us. Well, we've learned from the best, Mary Lee, and that is you. So thanks for being on here. Last, but certainly not least, we have Robert Lewis here with us. Robert is the president and board chair of the Black Cooperative Investment Fund, a nonprofit that provides microloans to develop a capital and promote economic empowerment specifically for Southern California's African-American community. He is also the community benefits manager for the LA Care Health Plan and an alumnus of Occidental College and Howard University. So Robert, go ahead and uh, say hello. We'd love to hear your voice in today's conversation. So hello to Nua, uh, Mary Lee, Michaela. Uh, I'm just uh, thrilled to be with all of you today. Uh, just I love having these conversations with folks who are uh, just as passionate about uh, economic empowerment and the need to intentionally focus on the economic needs of the Black community. I'm happy to represent BCIF and the community of uh, supporters involved with the organization and so let's get to it well great i think that's a great segue into sort of what this conversation is all about robert 
You know, with the advent of the COVID-19 crisis impacting all corners of our national economy right now, Los Angeles's businesses are looking to adapt their strategies to try and uh, mitigate those impacts. For small businesses, we know this has been especially difficult during these times. And while we know the Federal Paycheck Protection Program failed to pass the second round of funding uh, distribution, only 5% of small businesses received financial support during round one of the distribution, although more than 60% applied. Today, we're gonna to be talking about how small businesses, in particular, how black, diverse, and minority-owned businesses are pivoting to meet the needs of their customers and employees and how they're looking to remain uh, in business and how collective economic impact models may help to do that work because each of you are working on that in some ways. So let's start out with Michaela. Um, Michaela, the uh, Sola Food Co-op is cooperatively owned from what we understand, which means that the local community members have a say in how the business is run. Uh, why do you think cooperative ownership of a food business in South LA is so important, especially given the COVID-19 crisis? Thank you so much, Tanua, for that question. I think um, the work of the cooperative is so important. And I have really adopted this mantra of now more than ever, specifically um, in this time of COVID. And the reason why I feel like a cooperatively owned business is so important now is because we have seen so many mom and pop businesses close, very small businesses close in our community. And early on during this uh, pandemic, I really thought about what will recovery look like, especially in South LA, especially in black and brown communities where there's been so much disinvestment. And so what I feel like is promising is that the cooperative model does not ask, oh, what can I do? you know, as an individual, but it really does ask, what can we collectively do together? And so I think really tapping into that collective consciousness was, is this opportunity, you know, to seize the moment. And I just want to see um, cooperatives all over the place. And it also offers a different business model than just like, oh, okay, I want to start my own business. But I think with, there's a back to basics almost about cooperatives, right? Because cooperatives actually have a really long history in the United States, and they have a long history in the African-American community. So I think it's a really great opportunity um, to kind of go back to basics, relearn our history, and develop some alternative models to how we do business in our community. Now more than ever, I mean, yeah, this is great, Michaela, and thanks for um, talking about that, because if you think about the fact that um, some of the businesses that are closing, you know, this idea that it was, you know, maybe one person or one family, but with a cooperative model, you've got sort of a distributed uh, set of owners and potentially resources to help a business survive when there is a crisis like this. So, Mary, let's talk a little. Mary, let's talk a little bit about the importance of incentivizing small businesses in order to encourage Black communities to reclaim their local economies? How do we incentivize um, even, you know, getting into business, remaining in business, um, and being part of having an impact on our local economies, especially for Black communities right now? Right, it is a, a particular issue for Black communities because as Michaela alluded to, the, the small business option or avenue is often the only option for Black community members and other people of color, indigenous communities that have been victimized by, you know, racist policies and practices that frankly predate this 
particular crisis go back several hundreds of years, frankly. And every time throughout United States history, small uh, communities of color have banded together and found a way through business to meet their needs, overcome the disparities or discrimination barriers that they face looking for traditional employment or being hired or being limited to very, very low wage jobs. You know, small business has been that avenue to be able to, uh, first of all, be an outlet for people's creativity with food or clothing or fashion or whatever the business is, but also to be a, um, a backbone for their family and for their, uh, their neighbors to get their needs met as well as to make, you know, make some money that generates the kind of wealth that all communities need. So with that as a backdrop, we, we need to appreciate first and foremost that our current system is, people sometimes say it's broken. I don't think it's broken. I actually think it's rigged not to operate very effectively for people of color, particularly black people. And so, um, what we need to do is repair that damage. We need to create different approach and paradigm. And incentives is one way, particularly at the local and regional level, that that can happen. Governments can um, design incentives to open up the ability to be in business and to be successful in business to those groups that have been historically excluded. And just to give you a quick example, building on what um, what Michaela is talking about just in the food system. So we see now, particularly with COVID, the loss of a, a tremendous component of the food business industry. And that's everything from grocery stores to, uh, to restaurants to catering. And yet uh, food, particularly in Los Angeles County, is a major driver of the economy. One in seven people in this County of Los Angeles work in a food business, and uh, and mm -hmm. those businesses are rarely owned by people of color and black people. So, government, for example, can um, can create incentives to encourage residents of, of low income communities, communities of color, to open up businesses, or if they have them, to expand. It can do that by waiving fees or, or costs for permits. It can do that by helping provide low interest loans or forgivable loans to do um, kinds of uh, uh, structural uh, upgrades that might be necessary, refrigeration and some things like that for a food sure. business, for example. And just a host of other incentives that can lower the cost or provide a final financial assistance to either open a business or expand it. And there are technical assistance kinds of things, training, business planning that can also be offered. Uh, and then the last biggie for me, at least, is uh, incentives to help business operators own their their lots and land so that they not are not are just providing a business but are becoming property owners in their communities, which creates a level of stability that can sustain that that business operator and again their their families, their employees. Last point, small business is really the backbone of the US economy and it's way past time that uh, businesses of color, African American black businesses are able to be participants in, um, in that economic boom, that economic asset. That's great, Mary. So, I mean, you started out with the, it's a critical part of the economy um, that is maybe one of the key places that you've got to be able to participate, the Black community, because there may be other parts of the economy uh, that folks are not able to participate in quite as easily, readily, because of 
other things that we didn't talk about even here, but discrimination and employment and opportunity. And so, you know, it's really critical that they're able to participate well in entrepreneurship. And then you laid out for us um, sort of exactly what that looks like and how the public sector can also be involved in incentivizing uh, with fees and other resources and, you know, loans, which we're going to talk with Robert about right now um, in order to sustain uh, those uh, institutions and organizations. So thanks for that. So Robert, um, let's talk about the work of the Black Cooperative Investment Fund. I mean, the, the name is is pretty exciting all unto itself. Um, you work with uh, microloans and provide capital, especially to um, what I understand Black businesses who are not able to receive support from traditional lenders. So how does this impact, you know, this access to capital impact individuals and businesses uh, right now, especially during this economic crisis? And, and what's the work of the Black Cooperative Investment Fund right now to supply uh, resources to, to, to Black-owned businesses? Yeah, well, thank you for that question, Tanua. I mean, we're really, uh, to a heightened level of consciousness, obviously, uh, we get asked oftentimes similar questions. But for us, when I say us, I'm speaking about the board of directors and the the community of uh, of BCIF donors and other thought partners. Uh, what we've seen during this crisis, uh, it really just magnifies what we've known all along in terms of uh, you know the racial wealth gap. Uh, barriers to access to capital and just the economic disparities we experience here in Southern California and across the country. So we're just uh, we're we're raising you know our game as best we can on the board. Uh, we were talking about several strategies we can we can execute moving forward. I will say that uh, BCIF has gotten on the radar of funders that I think uh, who normally uh, may not have been paying attention to what uh, BCIF is all about. Um, at BCIF's core, it's really a social change organization that believes uh, fiscal imperatives uh, move the needle of change more so than uh, ethical or moral imperatives. And that's not to say there's no place uh, for efforts that just try to implore people to do the right thing because we believe it's the right thing. Uh, but the challenge with that is doing the so-called right thing is so subjective oftentimes. And our history in this country tells us that. Uh, but one thing that is pretty much indisputable uh, in a capitalistic society is that when you impact the bottom line, you can get things done. Uh, and so uh, in terms of how BCIF, uh, what we're seeing and how uh, BCIF's uh, the access to capital uh, affects our community differently than what we've seen uh, pre-crisis and where we are now, uh, magnifies the need. It gives uh, our community uh, uh, the the uh, encouragement that there's a lifeline for them out there when uh, there are so many barriers to pursuing capital from mainstream or traditional investors. I mean, uh, when BCIF was launched, we saw that uh, there were uh, investors that uh, proclaimed to uh, provide capital to under-resourced communities. And even when we looked at the data there, we were coming out disproportionately on the short end of the stick. Uh, so BCIF, uh, its whole reason for existing, is just magnified uh, at this point. Um, so we're needed more than ever. Uh, BCIF represents a community of folks who are culturally, politically, 
emotionally, uh, socially invested in the well-being of the Black community, what we call for people to do is to match that level of investment with your financial investment and understand that um, you know, if when there are gaps in funding, when there's gaps in access to capital, we have to be the ones to step up. Uh, we have the discretionary income to do so. As Michaela said, uh, cooperative economic models are not new. Uh, BCIF is not a novel concept. It's one that's just underutilized. And uh, we want to build momentum with what BCIF is doing and other people to step up and uh, for self. That's really what we're about. So uh, hopefully I, I could go on forever. I know you'll stop me. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> at the end of the day, in terms of how it impacts community differently, uh, it's just uh, magnifying the need for what we need to do. Well, Robert, I was so excited. I recall when you were starting the fund, like someone who, as someone who works in the community development finance space, I knew and understood the need for additional capital sources, specifically for Black-owned entities. You know, unfortunately, uh, almost 96% of Black-owned businesses have one or, or no employees. Right. Um, so these are really, really small entities that are capital constrained um, and don't have that additional resource, right, historically haven't had a public sector or traditional private sector sources. So starting a BCIF is super important. And uh, it's great to hear that some people are discovering you um, right now under the COVID-19 conditions. But I also think they're discovering you because we also have a new racial awakening in our country and people are recognizing that um, the statistics that I just described are not because people don't want to own businesses, don't want to grow. It's just the the uh, as you know, Mary Lee kind of pointed out, the system is rigged in such a way that it's really difficult um, for a whole host of reasons for those businesses to be able to access that capital. Exactly. Um, and, and I love this concept of really lifting up. You know, where are we fiscally putting our time and energy and resources as opposed to stopping at the moral and ethical uh, changes that need to happen? We know those need to go hand in hand. But once you've gotten there, um, the hope is that you then move to a meaningful, tangible way of investing in these communities. And it's so great that BCIF has uh, been able to help uh, do that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So one of the things that I want to just move our conversation to now is um, talking about um, kind of where we are. Um, you all are sort of on the front lines of thinking about leading uh, movements and, and capital and models of economic opportunity, um, specifically for the Black community and, and really for all uh, diverse businesses. Um, but Michaela, right now, um, you know, how have you and the local co-owners of the Sola Food Co-op addressed the impacts of the economic downturn? What's been the impact for the company and for your customers right now? Well, I have to remind folks that Sola Food Co-op is a startup um, cooperative. So we are not at store opening yet. We can't wait to like secure a site with the capital um, that we'll need in order to do that and actually get to store opening and um, really fill the gap that is needed when we talk about food access in South LA. But some of the things that we have been able to do as a cooperative together is really um, take a breath, right? And take a beat back and really decide like, okay, what is our path forward? I think in many ways, we are very fortunate that we aren't uh, a store that newly opened or only had one year under its belt um, in terms of opening. Because I think 
the current pandemic would have turned our model upside down, right? And so we were actually in the space where we're able to like live through this, right? And then make changes according to the business model that it will be reflective of this moment, right? Um, because I think the unforeseen costs that so many larger uh, supermarkets and grocery stores have had to undertake as a result of COVID-19 have been vast and um, and and a lot of money, you know, that maybe we would have been in that position. I would also say that, um, you know, one of the key cooperative principles and cooperatives are founded on seven principles is um, this idea of member, uh, democratic member control. So really attending our open board meetings that we have um, for our member owners so that they can voice like how what is our path forward what are the messages we need to craft so that people understand like now more than ever south la needs a food cooperative we have seen for decades um grocery stores larger well-known supermarkets close in our community and it really begs to question where are people going to get their food how are people feeding their families? Are they traveling outside of our community where we're losing the opportunity to invest in um, in our own community and keep circulating those dollars in our South LA communities? And so um, I think we've been able to, we lean in, I think to the moment, um, and I really appreciate the opportunity that we also recognize the need to take a breath. And so actually coming up this uh, in a couple of weeks um, on October 3rd, we'll have our annual meeting. This is another opportunity for um, econ uh, economic participation, like member owner economic participation. It's another cooperative model, uh, cooperative principle rather that we um, operate under. And so it's really an opportunity for our member owners to a, uh, be kind of briefed on everything we've done within the year, but also have their input heard. You know, how are we getting to store opening? How do we chart this path together? You know, so not just one single person, but, you know, us collectively and collaboratively. I'm so glad that you, um, I was, I wanted to make the connection with uh, the lack of fresh food, the lack of uh, food options in terms of how families are able to uh, procure the necessary sort of everyday things that people take for granted who are in other neighborhoods, like not having the grocery stores there. And so that is, you know, one issue that you're addressing with this model. The other piece is that, well, if we don't have it, then let's bring it. And maybe there isn't one person in the community who can open a full-on grocery store, but there are several people who together with their collective buying power are able to bring um, this kind of uh, resource, uh, critical resource to everybody uh, in the community. And given that we're in a COVID pandemic, I mean, it's you've got to stay safer at home. Uh, you've got to be able to get to food sources that are within a pretty short distance, um, given, you know, where the, the state of the world is. So having this kind of resource is, you know, almost an imperative. Uh, from a public health perspective, but then you've been able to couple that with how do we also economically undergird the communities um, as well at the same time. So I, I, I was like, I'm hoping that we get to this idea that food and economic opportunity can go hand in hand uh, with That's this right. model. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you. 
Yeah, no problem. So, Robert, um, we've got, uh, you know, part of what we were seeing, uh, I'm sure, you know, you were hearing from some of your uh, borrowers who had probably attempted to try and get um, support from the federal government at some point uh, early on, especially when the Paycheck Protection Program was open and some other SBA products. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you were hearing and what were some of the challenges in, in terms of uh, folks? being able to access this resource that seemingly was available for everybody but you know the, on, we, we did PPP loans so we can we can I can give that experience but I'd love to hear uh, what you were hearing yeah well I think uh, we we heard a lot one of the main things we were hearing is that if you didn't have an established relationship with uh, a bank then uh, you know your chances of getting a loan were you know, slim to none essentially and since so many of uh, our black owned businesses. Uh, well, I think you mentioned to Noah earlier uh, during uh, our discussion that, uh, you know, about 95% of black owned businesses have, you know, uh, basically just one employee or sole proprietorships. And so uh, when you're talking about um, businesses that uh, have gross revenues that are oftentimes, you know, pretty, pretty small and they are running on kind of a, a with a, a mom and pop <laughs> kind of uh, MO um, for various reasons. You know, they don't have those relationships with uh, the mainstream financial institutions. So uh, that is, was, is and was certainly a barrier. Uh, I'd say uh, uh, many people not knowing exactly kind of where to turn, even though we were all bombarded with, uh, you know, the opportunities for uh, PPP loans and what that looks like. Uh, some feeling like they weren't ready uh, in terms of their basic financials, um, you know, that, you know, just being able to present, you know, basic, uh, you know, P&L or balance sheet, things like that have served as barriers all along. And those are just amplified during these times. Um, you know, historically, uh, Black-owned businesses, we rely on uh, cash to fund our businesses, about 40 to 45% the data shows. Uh, about another 15% uh, rely on funding from friends and family. And so when you look at that, 55%, give or take, uh, aren't even looking at mainstream institutions and haven't even heard of CDFI. So many, we talk to uh, uh, black business owners that don't really know what the CDFI means uh, and that that's a, a viable resource. So I think really just not having knowledge of the landscape, not having relationships with it, uh, mainstream uh, lenders. Uh, we see all of that plus some. Uh, so all of that is just being exacerbated by the time that we're in now. Uh, again, I mentioned earlier, BCIF uh, is perceived as a lifeline for many. You know, the, the loans are five to 20,000, uh, which for, uh, for uh, many business owners may not seem like a lot, but if you're talking about 95 or so percent having one employee, then that could be a big deal. That's, you know, it can make a break uh, businesses that are struggling to stay uh, to stay afloat. Um, the data tells us, and I'm sure we're all familiar with this, that about 40% of Black-owned businesses nationwide uh, have gone away. Now, I don't, I don't, I think the jury's still out on whether uh, any of them will come back after this. We shall see. But uh, I think uh, some of that is due to a lack of access to capital. Some of it is due to lack of having a lifeline. Uh, some of it is due to just kind of throwing in the white towel. 
Some of it is due to folks just continuing to work their nine to fives and giving up their quote unquote side hustles for now. Um, so we're seeing a whole gamut of, of issues at this point, but I would like to think that BCIF fills the funding gap by uh, being a lifeline and not having the same uh, restrictive requirements that so many other uh, mainstream and even alternative lenders have. Uh, for example, there's no credit check with BCIF. Uh, there is some baseline criteria in terms of if your startup, what your uh, prospectus looks like, if you've been around for a bit, uh, you know, how have you performed historically, if you have the ability on you know, some level to repay, because that is important that we pay it forward. So it's important that borrowers can pay back into the fund so that we can uh, support uh, more and more businesses. And we're very clear about that. Uh, BCIF really merges the best of uh, cooperative economics, self-help. Uh, models, philanthropic models, crowdfunding, all of that rolled into one. And so we make it very clear, look, okay, the parameters are not what you'd find at some of your uh, other uh, typical lenders, but it's really important that everyone uh, has a stake in this and that, you know, it's not sure. that you're just, you're African American, you put your name on the application, that's that. You know, it's really important that we support one another uh, pay back into it so that everyone can have a lifeline. You know, so, um, I think ultimately that's it. It's a lifeline that is specifically for us and by us, um, and that has been uh, encouraging for some. But uh, I think if we move forward through this discussion, I'll uh, share with you some of the other takeaways we've seen in terms of uh, even with that lifeline being available, uh, it still hasn't been enough for, for some of us. And so I'll, I'll defer on that until later. And I'll, so, I'll yeah, right, we're, we're going conversation. We're going to have to have another conversation with you yeah. and just walk through what's what's happening and kind of what what you see as as the need and, and uh, you know, where you'd like to see the market go. But since you do have the mic and I'm going to get ready to close out here, um, just a couple of uh, thoughts that, you know, to kind of leave us with as far as today. Um, what do you think is the outlook for um, BCIF and what are you seeing in terms of the future for black business? Well, I'm certainly hopeful. Uh, otherwise, and uh, we're hopeful, uh, the board and the whole network of the, what we call the family, the BCIF family, we're hopeful. Otherwise, uh, we wouldn't continue to, to, to move forward. Um, I think uh, it, it's going to be critical that this is a sustained movement, not just a, a snapshot in time. That's probably my biggest concern is not only from, uh, you know, our, our allies slash accomplices uh, that, uh, you know, they're in it for the moment that they are in it in this battle with us uh, over an extended period of time. And even those of us within the African-American community that we're not, uh, you know, we don't have this elevated level consciousness just for the moment. Uh, in, in order to uh, address the gaps uh, for Black businesses and really more broadly, uh, you know, the economic well-being of our community, it's going to take a sustained movement. And typically, uh, we tend to function uh, from a reactive standpoint. I think we have to be proactive and be uh, engaged in a sustained way to uh, make sure that our our businesses are uh, healthy and intact. And have what they need. And have what they need. I mean, it's uh, economic viability of our Black businesses are uh, just, they're critical to the overall well-being of our community as a whole. I, I think that's a no-brainer. 
And so we have to look out for them. So, um, Robert, tell people where they can find out more information about BCF. What is the uh, web yeah. address? Uh, so um, the website is uh, B as in boy, C as in cat, I as in Ike, F as in Frank, U and as in Nancy, D as in David, bcifund.org. Uh, you can find um, the organization on social media, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram at BCI Fund. Um, and before we wrap up, to know, I uh, really want to emphasize to folks, BCIF started as uh, it really as a pool fund intended to lean on what we call kind of everyday Joe and Susie to uh, put skin in the game. Uh, this year, we've seen institutional investors get involved, so some foundation and uh, uh, corporate support. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, this has definitely been a part of that with a COVID grant. So uh, BCIF is really appreciative of that. Um, but we're also aware that uh, that kind of funding can be episodic, seasonal. And we need, uh, we know at the end of the day, those who are most impacted by the communities uh, that affect our community uh, need to stay involved, uh, be engaged, have skin in the game. So we're hoping uh, we continue to uh, increase momentum there. So BCIF will go as far as the community pushes it to go at the end of the day. It'll be, be as impactful as and as successful as the people who are involved with it push it to be. Well, we appreciate your leadership on that, you and the board. Um, so thanks for sharing that. Now, uh, Michaela, we're about to wrap up, but, um, you know, folks are probably really interested in learning more about the cooperative model. You'll tell us about that. And uh, what's the plans right now? Everybody needs something to eat at this moment, and there are very few places to get it right now. So you all must be pretty popular. I know. Um, yes. Currently, we sell organic grains and beans. We've also been able to partner with Kennedy Community Services Unlimited um, with their CSA box to provide fresh produce. And we're constantly thinking as we get to store opening, what are the different vendors that we can bring into the fold um, so that we start continuing to kind of live this mission? Like, we're going to be a full service grocery store, not a supermarket, but a grocery store. So a smaller, um, you know, market print of that. But we want people to say, these are the vendors that we're working with. These are the businesses that we value. We want to be able to uplift, you know, startup businesses as well and carry really high quality products and lift up our black and brown people of color and women of um, women owned businesses, you know, to have that, you know, a good percentage of those products on our shelf. It's a store opening, so um, we're in an exciting space because we're exploring and we're building partnerships, which is the best place to be. Um, Where can people find out about uh, getting connected and being part of the cooperative? Sure. I always say if you live, work, play, and or pay in South LA, then you need to join Sola Food Co-op. Um, and you can find us at solafoodcoop.com. That's S-O-L-A-F-O-O-D-C. OOP.com. And you can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Solar Food Club. Great. Well, thank you both for being on. And we lost Mary Lee in the middle there. Uh, we'll have to have another conversation with her. Uh, we know what a wealth of knowledge she is about various economic development policies. We want to thank all of you out there for joining us this week on the Changemakers LA podcast. We appreciate uh, the great uh, sort of insight that we got from our guests today. And thanks for all of you and joining in on this conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast so you're notified 
notified of new episodes that you can share with your colleagues as well. If you're a small business in need of grant funding, please don't forget to visit lacovidfund.org. And you can also visit ascendla.org to learn more about how we're growing the next generation of $1 million plus businesses owned by women and people of color. This episode of Changemakers LA was made possible by our partner, J.P. Morgan Chase. If you'd like to learn more about how we provide capital support for small businesses at LISC LA, please visit us online at www.lisc.org. That's L-I-S-C.org forward slash Los Angeles. And follow us on Twitter at LISC underscore LA. You can find the rest of the series on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Subscribe to hear more conversations about the people and places that shape Los Angeles.